Welcome to the Gateway.Live podcast. We're so glad you're here. We pray that God speaks to you through this message and through His Word today. For more information about our church, please visit us at www.gatewaylife.com. Now let's tune in. We're starting a new series this weekend entitled Pioneers, and it comes from some stuff God has been doing in me all summer long. And I don't know how long we're going to be in this series, um, but I want to give you the backdrop as we jump into this series and this message. This summer, the Lord helped me understand. He took me back to a moment years ago when he pointed off in the distance and he said, Preston, you were created to go there. And this summer, the Lord helped me understand that without even realizing it, I had actually stopped going in that direction. It was difficult at first to kind of navigate through, but that's what we're going to talk about this weekend. Because before we start talking about pioneering, going where God created each one of us to go, because whether you realize it or not, within all of us as children of God is this desire to go because God put it within us. It's not just a command. It's what we've been designed and created to do. But oftentimes, we are tempted to stop along the way. And here's why. Whenever there is difficult to get to, there will always be a temptation to stay right here. Genesis chapter 11 gives us a moment in time where someone just like me, maybe just like you, was going some, somewhere but decided to stop along the way. Let's read it together. Genesis chapter 11, verse 31. One day, Terah took his son Abram and his daughter-in-law Sarai and his grandson Lot and moved away from Ur of the Chaldeans. He was headed for the land of Canaan, but they stopped at Haran and settled there. Terah lived for 205 years and died, not in Canaan, while still in Haran. What we're going to talk about today are the eight reasons why many of us choose to stop and settle when God says go and pioneer. Before we can talk about pioneering, we've got to talk about settling. And the title of this message is Settler's Remorse. Settler's Remorse. Now, we're going to do something. I'm going to put the eight things we're going to talk about today on the screens. And I want you, Matt's just going to play behind me here. I want you to take 60 seconds and spend a little time with the Lord in dialogue, looking at this list, and I want you to answer this question. What is the number one reason why I typically stop or am presently stopped when God has told me to go? Take a look at this list. Just you and the Lord right now. What's the reason? Maybe you realize you've been stopped for some time. Why? Ask the Lord, why have I stopped? Maybe you're not stopped now, but in the past you have plenty of times. What's the number one reason?
Some of you are thinking, I have more than one. Don't worry, I have all eight. <laughs> now I want you to do something that we've never done as a church before. And I want to give you the heart behind it. Sometimes I, I get concerned that too many of us think that the conversation that's happening most often in church is between God and Preston. And we forget that God calls us to do life together as the body of Christ, as the family of God. And so I'm gonna do this from time to time. And I know for some of you, this is gonna create a little bit of anxiousness, but it's okay. We're a family and we're going to do life together as a church. So in Tempe, here in Scottsdale, or maybe you're watching this online in a, in a cafe somewhere, I want you to take a moment. I want you to find someone around you that you're with. Maybe you just met them. Maybe you came to church with them. Doesn't matter. But someone around you, find one or two people. And here's what I want you to do. I'm going to give you two minutes. And I want you to answer the question in front of everybody else. Tell them the number one reason why you typically stop and why. And let them give you their answer. All right? All right. Take a couple minutes. Find somebody around you, one or two people, and begin to do life together a little bit. Answer this question and let them answer it. If you're sitting in a cafe somewhere doing this, you just begin to write it down with the Lord. Just write down the why behind, the biggest reasons why. All right, you got about 30 more seconds. I know for some of you, this is difficult. It, it's, listen, but we're, we're going to do this more often because we're doing life together. Hey, nothing is more difficult than trying to do life alone. And when we come to church, it's not just a conversation between me and God. It's a conversation between you and God and you and God's people. That's the way the family of God works best. Now, everybody had a little different reason why that they stop when God says go. And we're gonna walk through these eight reasons together, all right? Here's the first reason why we typically stop, obstacles. How many of us said obstacles happen to be the number one reason why I stop when God says go? Just put your hand up, okay? Put your hand up because realize you just told someone and if you're not raising your hand and you just said it, they're sitting there going, you're such a liar. 
Like, I don't even know if you're saved right now. <laughs> you just be truthful, okay? Obstacles, I'm raising my hand for all eight, all right? Obstacles sound like this. Something just keeps getting in my way. Now, let me talk to you for a moment. If obstacles are the number one reason why you stop whenever God says go. If occasional obstacles intimidate you, divine destinations will usually elude you. Here's why. Obstacles are a part of every journey God takes us on. The question is not, do you have obstacles or not? We all do. The question is, how do I see my obstacles? Romans chapter 8, verse 37, Paul says, listen, in spite of all these things, in all of this mess, in all of these obstacles, in all of this difficulty, in all of this, in all of these things, we're more than conquerors. I don't know that we always act like that. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Being more than a conqueror means fully understanding that even the biggest obstacles for us as believers are something to step upon rather than be stopped by. Here's the problem. If you see obstacles as your number one reason for stopping, it's because you see them as stop signs when I believe every obstacle God allows in your life, he designs to be a step stool. It's not some cheesy mantra. Listen, every time I see obstacles in my life, I don't always get excited, but I know God is putting a ladder in front of me. Too many of us see obstacles as roadblocks. God's saying, listen, don't let something I have designed to grow you become the number one way the enemy stops you. Satan will throw obstacles in our path. But only our God can take an obstacle and turn it into a shortcut. If you struggle with the fear of obstacles, I'm not telling you to get over it. I'm just telling you to see these obstacles differently. They're not as bad as you think they are. And God is allowing them because he's designed them to help you grow. Here's the next thing on the list, a lack of resources. How many of us said a lack of resources is the number one reason why I typically stop? Okay, it sounds like this. I don't have what I need to go there. I can't go there because I don't have what I need. Here's one of the things I've learned when I become focused on a lack. It reminds me I've become unfocused on the Lord. I'm no longer focusing on the Lord when I can't get lack out of my head. When I have a scarcity mentality, you remember in Psalm 23, verse 1, David makes a brilliant statement. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Literally translated, it means I lack nothing. Now, as David's saying, I have everything there is to have in the world. Of course not. What David is saying is, since the Lord is my shepherd... I don't always have what I want and I don't always have what I need, but I am constantly in touch with the one who has everything. Because I am connected to the perfect shepherd, I lack nothing because he has everything. See, many times when we are debilitated by a lack of resources, 
It's because we're looking at what isn't there rather than what we have access to. And I'm not talking about money. For those of you that struggle in this area, let me give you another verse. Romans chapter 8, verse 32. Paul says, since God did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, for you, won't God also give us everything else? The next time the devil tries to convince you, you can't go there because you have a lack of resources. You need to be reminded and remind your enemy that God gave the most valuable thing to you that he could have possibly given you. Doesn't make any sense then that God would withhold these little needs and these little things that we need to get where God created us to go. No. God gave his son for you and to you. You don't lack nearly what you think you do. Oftentimes, the reason we feel there is a lack is because we're comparing what we have to someone else. I don't have what they have, but they're not going where you're going. So they don't need, you don't need what they need. You're either gonna focus on what you don't have or the God you're walking hand in hand with who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. David says, the Lord is my shepherd. I'm not my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. For those of you who battle with a fear of lack of resources, you are not your provider. Your God is. And he's gonna make sure you have what you need to go where he's calling you to go. Here's the next thing on the list, and this one might hit home for many of us, impatience. How many of us say impatience is the number one reason I, I stop when God says go? Impatience sounds like this. I am so sick and tired of having to wait. We can all laugh because we all know we say something like that. In Numbers chapter 21, we see a moment in time where the children of Israel have left the land of slavery, Egypt, but they're not yet in the land of the promise, Canaan. They're somewhere in the middle and watch how they begin to behave in between. Numbers chapter 21, verse four. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God in their impatience and against Moses, saying, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless manna that's saving our lives each and every morning. Isn't it amazing what we complain about when we're impatient? If you've ever wondered what you look like, what I look like when we become impatient with God, go back to the last time you were walking through Walmart and passed by the toy section and heard that four-year-old child start screaming at the top of their lungs, I want this toy now! Give it to me now! And they begin to look like Satan himself. I don't even know what Satan looks like, but that's what I imagine him to look like in that moment. My daddy is an abuser because he won't give me this toy now! When you walk by, you're like, if I were your daddy, I'd take that toy and... <laughs> just kidding, just kidding, but not really. That's what we look like when we become impatient with God. Impatience is our way of telling God, while you might have all strength, you certainly don't have enough speed.
I love that you tell me you got all this strength, but my man, speed it up. Impatience has an ugly sound to it. And let me tell you why. Whenever you're frustrated that you're not already there, you will always be angry about where you presently are. Impatience is the ugly way of telling God you're slow. Let me ask you a question if you battle impatience, if it's the number one reason why you stop when God says go, is God perfect? Not a rhetorical question, is God perfect? Okay, that means everything God does is perfect, which means when God does everything he does, it's perfect. Because if his timing were imperfect, his work would be too. If you battle impatience, you need to write this one down. Impatience comes from an imperfect perspective of God's perfect timing. It's nasty right there. You need to tattoo that on your forearm if you struggle with impatience. Impatience is the habit of those who believe they should be exempt from God's process. Whereas patience is the behavior of those who understand the beauty and benefits of God's process. Oftentimes, when God asks me to wait, it's one of the biggest ways in his process where he teaches me and reminds me that where I am going is not nearly as important as the one going with me. And if you battle impatience, I challenge you with this. Instead of looking at the stopwatch, wanting to be where you're not, why don't you change the way you see God's request to wait and see it like this. God's gracious act of giving you more time to prepare. Anytime God asks us to wait, he's giving us time to prepare. Here's the next thing on the list, fear of the unknown. How many of us said fear of the unknown is the number one reason why I stopped? This is a biggie. It's been in every service. It sounds like this. I'm afraid of what might happen. There's a word we commonly use for this, worry, worry. I wonder how many of us spend more time gripped by fear of what might happen than there are those of us who spend so much time energized by the dream of what could happen. There was a study done a while back on worry and they found that 85% of the things people worry about never end up happening. And out of the 15% of the time, when it did end up happening, over 90% of the time, the people found out one of two things. Either it wasn't as bad as they thought it was going to be, or they were more prepared to handle it than they thought. And here's what that means. Over 90% of the time that we are afraid of something that might happen, it, neither never, it either never happens, or when it happens, we realize we're more ready for it than we thought. It's not as bad as we thought it would be. Yet we spend so much time gripped with the fear of what might happen. And here's what we have to talk about when we talk about the fear of the unknown. We're really talking about unknown outcomes. And let me help you, if this is your battle, let me help you look at the fear of the unknown a little differently. I personally believe 
that unknown outcomes are one of God's favorite ways to be romantic with you. Let me explain. If you knew every outcome, if you knew how everything was going to turn out, how could God do exceedingly abundantly above all you could ask for or imagine? He couldn't do it because you already know every outcome. If you struggle in this area, I, I want you to remember this. Surprises are spectacular when God is the one who gives them. Well, Preston, I'm not scared of the God surprises. I'm scared of Satan's surprises. Why do you spend some more time thinking about how Satan might surprise you than the God who holds the circle of the earth in his hand, who's obsessed with you? Are you really going to spend more time focused on how the devil might scare you and surprise you with negative things? Then you're going to fixate on the fact that the God of the universe is so obsessed with you that he is right now presently devising a new way to tell you and show you just how much he loves you. He loves to surprise you. But the enemy convinces us that all surprises are bad. They're not. And if you battle this, rather than get you focused on an outcome, I want you to remember the word overcome. Far more important than the outcome is remembering that the one who has already overcome holds you by the hand every day of your life. Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10, God says, don't be afraid. No matter what might happen, don't be afraid, for I am with you. Don't be discouraged, no matter what might happen, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, no matter what might happen, no matter what's ahead, and I will help you. I will hold you up with my victorious right hand. If you battle in this area, instead of fixating on the fear of what might happen, I'm challenging you today. Begin to dream again about what could happen when God has his way. Here's the next thing on the list. Feeling unworthy. How many of us said feelings of unworthiness are the number one reason why we stop when God says go? Doesn't this feel great? Just kind of go, ah, that's me. I'm raising my hand at all eight. So if, if, every service, people are like, uh, at first I thought I just battled one, and by the end of the message, I realized, yeah, at least five or six of them. Yeah, welcome to the club. Feelings of unworthiness sound like this. I don't deserve that. This one is the one that breaks my heart most as a daddy. To think about hearing my children say, I appreciate that you believe in me. I appreciate that you want to do this for me, but I don't, I don't feel like I deserve this. And if that's you, if you battle feelings of unworthiness, I'm about to come right into your neighborhood right now with the Spirit of God. Let me help you understand. Let's say you're having a garage sale, trying to raise as much money as you possibly can. And you're putting everything up for sale, your golf clubs, the, the china, everything. And you have this old ratty rock shirt from the 80s that has more holes than fabric, more stains than clean spots. And you think, I think I can get two bucks for this bad boy. So I'm going to put a $5 price tag on it. And a man walks into the garage and he sees your golf clubs that you're trying to sell for 800 bucks. He, he's not impressed. He sees the china you're trying to upsell for 2,000 bucks. 
He's not impressed. But then he sees this ratty, holy, stain-covered 1980s rock shirt. And he says, what do you think this one's worth? And you say, five bucks? And the guy says, that's ridiculous. And you respond and you say, well, what do you think it's worth? What do you give me for it? And the man without hesitation says, $5 million. I'm going to write you a check for $5 million right here if you'll give me this shirt. Okay, question. Would you take that deal? Okay, if you wouldn't take that deal, you were at the wrong church. <laughs> Why would you take that deal? Because we all know a good deal when we see one, especially when we're on the receiving end. Okay, well, if we understand a situation like that, why do we have such a hard time understanding just how much God paid for us? And if you battle with feelings of unworthiness, I want you to write this truth down and never forget it. God overpaid for you on purpose. He overpaid for you on purpose. He wanted to send a message to you. Yes, it required the blood. I understand that theologically, but trust and believe God can do more than one thing at a time. He was making an extravagant statement. Listen to what scripture says, and if you battle feelings of unworthiness, I want you to be you in this passage. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18, for you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And it was not paid with mere gold or silver. Those things lose their value. It was the precious blood of Jesus Christ, the sinless, spotless lamb of God. Watch this next part. God chose him as your ransom, as your price, long before the world began. God set your value before he ever even made you. In man's economy, it's often said, a person is only worth what someone is willing to pay them. But in God's economy, God says, a person is only worth what I willingly paid for them. And if you battle feelings of unworthiness, it's not because your value is low. It's because your calculator stinks. No calculator in the world can put an accurate price tag on your value. Only the blood can do that. Only the blood of Jesus can truly let you know just how valuable you are. And if you battle in this area, you need to remember that understanding all God has for you starts with you understanding just how much God paid for you. You're worth more than you can wrap your mind around. Here's the next thing on the list, feelings of inadequacy. How many of us said feelings of inadequacy are the number one reason? Some of you are like, I I've raised my hand for three now. It's great, join the club. This is what feelings of inadequacy sound like. I can't, I can't go there. I can't do that. I can't, I can't, I can't. If you find yourself using that language consistently, it's only because you have bought the lie the enemy is constantly preaching to you that you can't do it. And let me let you in on a little secret why he does that. If the devil can convince you you can't do it, he dramatically increases the odds that you'll never even try. 
You can't be a great husband. You can't be a great wife. You can't be a great employee. You can't be a great son or daughter of God. You can't, you can't, you can't. Okay, if you battle in this area, let me help bring this, bring this home for you. Go back to when you were like in sixth grade. And remember a time where you were standing in front of a really difficult challenge and you're looking at it. Maybe you're standing on a bridge looking to jump off into the river. It was like 25 feet, but you're kind of freaking out and you, you want to try, but no, I don't think I can. And some punk kid in your little friend group walks up to you and goes, you can't do that. And it's like all of a sudden what happened? Something starts rising up in you. And if you're anything like me, you always heard these words come out of your mouth when somebody said that, that to you. You want to bet? <laughs> you want to bet? You don't think I can do that? You want to bet? Just watch me try. Okay, question. Why, when we were in sixth grade, when someone said we couldn't, we got a chip on our shoulder and went and did it. And now as adults, when the devil comes and says, you can't, we sit down and say, you know what? You're right. Preston, you can't lead this church where God wants it to go. Why wouldn't I get a chip on my shoulder and say, you want to bet? Watch me try. You can't be the wife of your husband's dreams because you got too much baggage in your past. Instead of buying that lie and agreeing, why not get a chip on your shoulder and say, you want to bet? Watch me try. You can't be the father of your children's dreams because you never even had a daddy. Want to bet? Watch me try. You can't be a good disciple because no one in your family even knows God. Want to bet? Watch me try. Why do we spend so much time agreeing with his lies? We need to get a chip on our shoulder like we did back in the day. When I was studying for this message and I, I got all riled up in my, my own little way, I felt like the Lord just dropped a bomb. He said, Preston, do you know why in the sixth grade, as my son, as my daughter, do you know why many of you find yourselves responding in confidence with that chip on your shoulder? It's because as my children, you have all things are possible running through your veins. But as adults, we forget that kind of thing. And when he says you can't, we agree. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, Paul's saying, listen, every time I keep asking God to take this weakness away, these feelings of inadequacy, yet every time God responds saying, listen, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So now I'm glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and in the insults, hardships, persecutions, and troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Listen, if you're battling feelings of inadequacy, you are closer to strength than you think you are. Because God says real strength starts with true weakness. Paul says, I brag about my weaknesses now because I've learned when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Listen, when you feel like you can do it, when you have the strength to do it, what typically happens? You go try it and you're tempted to try it in your own strength. But when you know you can't do something, what typically happens? You lean on the one who has all strength. Feelings of inadequacy. Get us to agree with the lie, I can't. 
Here's the next thing on the list. What lies behind our past. How many of us said my past, some things that happened in my past is the number one reason. Way to go you. There's been some bashfulness. Way to go you. We've all got some stuff that from time to time we think, I, I, because of what happened back there, it all undoes what God wanted to do up there. Every mistake I made back here voids what God wanted to do up there. That is one of the biggest lies the enemy convinces us all of. Psalm chapter 103, verse 12, God calibrates our thinking related to our sin. Because of the blood of Jesus, God has removed our sins as far from us as the east is from the west. We all know that, but what does that mean? What does that look like? Let me help you understand if you typically beat yourself up because of your past. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5 says that love keeps no record of wrongdoing. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8 says God is love. So if we put one and one together, what do we get? If love keeps no record of wrongdoing and God is love, that means God, because of the blood of Jesus, when we apply it to our past, present, and future sin, because of the blood of Jesus, God keeps no record of our wrongdoing. Here's what that means if you consistently beat yourself up because of your past. That every time you hear a voice bringing up the record of your wrongdoing, it is not the one who loves you that is saying that. It is the one who hates you because love keeps no record of wrongdoing. If someone is playing the record of your wrongdoing over and over in your head, you've got to settle this today. That is not God. That's not how love works. The one who hates you plays like that. God set you free from all of that. Over the last six years, I haven't always been the leader God was asking me to be at this church. And one of the typical reasons is the past. Because I remember the kind of leader I was in the past. One of the worst reasons not to go where God is calling you to go is this excuse. But you don't know how bad I used to be. Listen, we're either going to talk about used to be or we're going to move towards going to be. You got to pick. I don't know about you, but I don't want to sit around and talk about my past all the time. I want to be grateful that God applied the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, to my past and set me free from all of that. Here's the last thing on the list. Strongholds. Strongholds. How many would say the number one reason why I stop when God says go is a stronghold? And if you don't know what that is, here's what it sounds like. I'll never be able to change this. It'll always be this way. I'll never be able to get victory in this area of my life. That's what a stronghold sounds like. And, and listen, strongholds in the church have been so overcomplicated. I, I mean, like for some teachers, you gotta go through a 10 hour class to understand what a stronghold is. And listen, either they're much smarter than I am or I'm much dumber than they are or a combination of the two. But here's what a stronghold really is. I'll give you the definition, the most simple definition I can give you. A stronghold is an incorrect pattern of thinking based upon a lie that we allow to become our way of thinking. Here's the more, even more simple way to say it. A stronghold is when we begin to believe a lie so much so that we turn it into the truth. You'll always be an alcoholic because you've never been able to go without a drink. 
You'll always struggle in this area because you've never been able to stop. Okay, does that sound like what God talks like? Does that, does that really sound like how God talks? No. Those are, those are pronouncements of curses, not blessings. And listen, let me give you the easiest way to tear down a stronghold. The only way to tear down a stronghold which is built upon a lie is to stand on and in the truth. There's only one verse in the entire New Testament that talks about strongholds. And I think there's only one verse, there doesn't need to be thousands because it's a lot more simple than it's made out to be. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse four. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty, mighty in God for pulling down strongholds casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. If you find yourself battling saying, I'll always struggle with this. It's always gonna be like this. I'll never get free from this. That's a stronghold and you can get free from it. But you have got to start acknowledging the lie and standing on and in the truth. And sometimes it's as easy as just saying this right here. I'm letting you in on a little secret in my world, all right? This works for me a lot. When I get stirred up a little bit, it feels like that cloud's starting to come over my head and the enemy's starting to do stuff and then I get so spun around. I don't know what's God and what's the enemy. Here's what sometimes I just have to say out loud. That is not how God talks. That is not how God talks. There have been times in my life I've had to repeat it over and that is not how God talks. That is not how my God talks. That is not how I am talks. That is not how God talks. And then it breaks. And I'm able to grab onto the truth, stand on it and in it, and tear down every incorrect pattern of thinking based upon a lie. I don't know which one you typically struggle with the most out of the eight. I don't know why you stop or why you have stopped. But the big question is not really why do you stop or why have you stopped? The big question is what do I do if I've stopped? In the summer as I was spending some time with the Lord walking through this personally, I'm gonna shoot totally straight with you. I was kind of getting ready for a spanking. When he said, Preston, you don't even realize it, but you have stopped. My mind immediately went to, he's mad at me. I'm in trouble. I wasted two years. This is not good. I'm about to have to go into spiritual timeout for two years to pay for that. And I'm kind of getting ready for the whooping. And I said, Lord, how do I make this right? And I was blown away at his response. He said, Preston, two things. First, confess it. I need you to be aware that you stopped, why you stopped, and I need you to be able to acknowledge it. Can I tell you something? You've already done that today. In that little group time, you confessed why you stop or have stopped. I totally tricked you. You actually did the first of the two steps and you actually did the harder of the two steps. The second step is so much easier. The first is to acknowledge it, confess it before the Lord and others. But the second step is to repent. 
And here's what repent means. Change your direction. And here's what the Lord said to me. Preston, here's how repentance happens when you've stopped. Stop the stopping and get going. I was like, well, well there's got to be a trick here. Like I've stopped for too long. Surely I'm in huge trouble. No, no, there's still plenty of time, son. Stop the stopping and just get going. If you've stopped, don't beat yourself up for it. Because God is not beating you up for it. Just stop the stopping. And let's be going. Thanks for joining us on Gateway.Live. For more information about Gateway Church, please visit us at www.gatewaylife.com.